We're going to look at three simple things uh, from the Word of God this evening. Uh, Point number one is called the character of God. The character of God, Nahum chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God. Book of Nahum chapter number 1, verses 1 through 8. The Bible says, The Burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Pray that you teach us important truths, lessons from your word this afternoon. We thank you for bringing us together to fellowship around the word of God. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What we find here as... The book of Nahum begins is a stunning picture and description of the character of God himself. Sometimes it is good just to be reminded of the power and of the majesty of God. God is jealous. God is a God of vengeance. He says elsewhere, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God reserves wrath for his enemies. He is slow to anger, great in power, but will not acquit the wicked. He'll not let them get away with wickedness. God is in the whirlwind and in the clouds. God rebukes the sea. He dries up the river, reminding me of when Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, or when God stayed the Jordan River and the Red Sea. Mountains quake at the presence of God. Hills melt and the earth burns. It reminds me of a scene in Exodus, which we're going to look at, when God was about to give the law. The people could only get so close to Mount Sinai. Nobody can withstand this awesomeness of God. Fury is poured out, the Bible says. Rocks are thrown down, but at the same time, if you look there in verse number 7, the Bible says, The Lord is good. And he's a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knows them, us who trust in him. 
And even Jesus in John chapter 14, he promises to manifest himself to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments. What is your attitude toward the character of God? Can we take a moment to thank the Lord that despite all of this that we've read, he is still good to us individually. He knows us on a personal level. We praise the Lord for that. Yet he is so far above each and every one of us in a way that should really blow our minds to think that this God would send his only son to die for us. And as I think about the character of God seen in this opening uh, passage of scripture, it reminds me of the importance of the presence of God. What is your attitude toward the presence of God? Let's go to Exodus chapter 19. So turn over to Exodus chapter number 19. As you think about the idea of the character of God and his presence, and we see here Moses about to meet with God on Mount Sinai, an extremely important part in the history of the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter number 19 and verse number 10. Look what the children of Israel had to do when it comes to the presence of God. How important is this? Verse 10, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. Wow. Verse 13, There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man. It shall not live when the trumpet soundeth long. Then they shall come up to the mounts. Verse 14. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. Verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud upon the mounts, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether parts of the mounts. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it. Think about this scene. It says, In fire, the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. You know, the children of Israel had many faults. We understand that. But at least in this passage, we see that they wanted to at least be near the presence of God. This is quite the scene. If that was all happening here in this church, maybe it would change our perspective on just who God is. And I think often we take the presence of God for granted. 
These people had to wash their clothes. There were these rules they had to follow. Or maybe they would die if, if they didn't follow what God had told them. You know, we know intellectually that God is always with us and that we can pray at any time. We see here the children of Israel doing a lot of work to prepare to meet with God. What is your attitude toward the presence of God, toward the character of who God is? I'd like us to think about an example of a prophet who didn't seem to care too much about the presence of God. Go to the book of Jonah in chapter number one. A prophet of God who did not take the presence of God seriously. Go to the book of Jonah, chapter number one. Jonah chapter number 1, verse 1 through 3, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I've studied Jonah a lot, but it never really hit me until this week. It's interesting to see there in verse number three. I don't believe it's a coincidence that it mentions twice that Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. Don't run from God's presence. Jonah is instructed here to go to Nineveh for their wickedness had come up before God. It had become so bad that now it had to come to an end. God was going to destroy them. The Bible says in Nahum chapter 1 that darkness pursues the enemies of God. Nineveh was the capital of the great city of the, the capital city, rather, of the Assyrian Empire at the time. One of the most cruel empires in the history of the world, known for torturing their, their victims in humiliating ways, and so much more that we'll not mention here. They're ruthless warriors, and it shows us here really that Jonah and the Israelites were simply waiting. For God to wipe Nineveh off the face of the earth, along with the Assyrian Empire. But sometimes God doesn't do what we assume he's going to do. God comes to Jonah, and of all places, he is sent to Nineveh, the capital city of the most hatred, hated empire at the time. And maybe Jonah was thinking, what will happen to me? If I go to Nineveh, maybe I'll be a victim. I'll end up being humiliated and tortured and possibly killed. He flees from the presence of the Lord. And chapter 1 is interesting reading through it because we see some opposites going on. We have the prophet of God running away from God. But the pagan sailors that he ends up with are the ones trying to pray and to figure out what to do. We have the prophet of God sleeping in a boat 
But the pagan sailors crying to the prophet of God to, to do something, to cry unto Jehovah and do whatever he can in the midst of this storm. Jonah ends up in the belly of the great fish. We see his prayer in chapter number two. He realizes that maybe running away from God wasn't a great idea. God's plan was going to take place no matter what. He prays a prayer of repentance to a degree. Chapter 3 begins with Jonah right back where chapter 1 began. He has an opportunity now to do the will of God. Look at Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 and verse number 1. Sounds very similar to chapter 1 as well. Jonah 3 verse 1 through 10. Let's see what happens. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying the same thing. Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee in the first place. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. An eight-word sermon. A little bit shorter than what I'm doing today. Um, Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He laid his robe from him. He covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? And turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil, from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. God used a perfect, imperfect rather, a selfish, a stubborn Jonah to revive what was the most pagan and wicked city in that day. If this happened today, this would make headlines all over television, all over social media. The king declares a fast, and he even has the animals join in on this. Even the cows had to stop eating. Wow, they had to repent also of whatever it is. Everybody, all the animals, all the people, sackcloth and ashes. The greatest revival in history almost. But Jonah isn't happy. Unbelievable. And I believe that Jonah chapter 4 is proof that Jonah never repented of his sin in the first place. And wishing destruction upon Nineveh and Assyria. Because in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah goes out to wait for God to maybe rain fire down from heaven upon this city. And if you read carefully, we're not going to go through chapter 4, 
but I can find about five opportunities that God gave Jonah to repent and to change his horrible attitude toward this situation. Five chances to give glory to God for saving Nineveh because they repented and turned from their evil ways. Sometimes God is a God of second chances. He gave Jonah chance after chance to repent. It reminded me of Genesis chapter 3, how God gives Adam and Eve chance after chance to repent and to confess what it is that they had done. God gives Jonah so many opportunities to repent, but he fails to do so. At the end of chapter 4, he's basically giving God the silent treatment. And there's a question asked at the end of chapter 4 that Jonah fails to answer. God gave Jonah chance after chance to glorify God. And God gave Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire this chance not only to have this revival, but to continue in the same vein and keep serving the God of heaven. You know, this revival in Nineveh that we know so much about, this revival did not just have to be a one-time event where everybody got right with God for one day and that was it. The revival in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah did not have to be temporary, but it was. Unfortunately, history shows us and the Bible shows us that eventually the Assyrians go right back to their heathen practices and to their wickedness against God, to their cruel ways. And it gets to a point where God has to step in again and wipe them out. God gave them this chance not only to repent and to put on sackcloth and ashes and to get right with God, but to continue in that way. So we see here Jonah visits Nineveh, and there's this great revival. And you think it's wonderful. Nineveh was saved, and they were not destroyed, but a hundred years later, they are destroyed. Because they went right back to sin and wickedness against the God of heaven. And we see that account in the book of Nahum, in the book of Nahum. They go right back to sin. They don't continue serving the God of heaven that they had cried out to in Jonah chapter number three. We've seen various aspects about the character of God. Let's now think about the calamity of God's enemies. Point number two, the calamity of God's Enemies. Go back to the book of Nahum. So we are in Jonah, then Micah, and then Nahum. The calamity of God's enemies. They had their chance, but God eventually had to allow these apostates people to be destroyed. Chapter 2 describes the fall of Nineveh. Chapter 3 goes into perhaps a more general destruction of Assyria. Because God is grieved by the death of the innocent. God won't allow violent nations to endure. God was ready and willing to orchestrate the downfall of this oppressive 
nation. God's enemies will not prevail. And he will get the ultimate victory. The book of Nahum not only speaks of the might of God and of his justice in destroying Nineveh and Assyria, which turned their back on God, but in general it shows us how God can and will deal with people who reject God and go in the opposite direction from him. And that God has not forgotten his people. He'll remove the wicked in his time. Chapter 2 and 3 of Nahum describe the fall of Nineveh and then Assyria. And if you read through chapter number 2, you can almost hear the sounds of war. As God allows the Babylonian Empire to destroy Nineveh. Look at Nahum chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. The Bible says, The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariot shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. Look at verse 8. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Verse number 10. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. And look at verse number 13. The Bible says, Behold, I am against thee. A stunning statement. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. I don't know about you, but I shudder at the thought of God saying to me, Behold, I am against you. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. He fights against those who would dare to stand in his path, those who fail to humble themselves before God. Verse 8 of chapter 1, darkness pursues the enemies of God. Go to Psalm chapter 7, the book of Psalms chapter number 7. Look at a few verses in the book of Psalms about what does God think of his enemies? What happens to those who oppose God, who live in wickedness? Psalm chapter 7 and verse number 11. Psalm 7 and verse 11 says, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm chapter 9, verse number 5. Psalm chapter 9, verse number 5. Thou hast rebuked the heathen. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out their name forever and ever. Verse 17 of that same chapter, Psalm 9, 
Verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Go over to Psalm 26, Psalm chapter 26, verse number 5. Here's what's supposed to be our attitude as we think about the calamity of God's enemies. Psalm 26, verse 5, the Bible says, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Why is he going to do that? Verse 6, I will wash my hands in innocency, so will I compass thine altar, O Lord. The Bible teaches us over and over again that God will destroy the wicked. His enemies will not triumph. Calamity awaits the nations who set themselves up as enemies of God. Look at Nahum chapter 3. Go back to Nahum chapter number 3, verse number 4. And chapter 2 and 3 just continue to describe the destruction that will take place upon these people who have rejected God. Nahum chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that seeth, selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Verse 5. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse 19. The last verse in this book. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? And when I read through the book of Nahum, and when I read through verses such as these that we have read, it really begs the question, what happened with these people? What happened between the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum? Why was there a revival in Jonah chapter 3? And everything seemed wonderful. And everybody's repenting of their sin. in sackcloth and ashes. And crying unto God. And there's this great revival in Jonah chapter 3. But then we get to Nahum chapter 2 and 3. And this empire is getting condemned and destroyed. What happened in between? And as I continue to study this out, I tend to agree with one scholar who suggested that the reason this all happened was because the Ninevites had not transmitted the knowledge of the true God to their children and to the next generation. They had not passed on the truth to the generation after them. Somehow, despite the wonderful revival in the book of Jonah, it didn't continue. The next generation came along and reverted right back to the old heathen practices of their time. Idol worship, cruelty to neighboring countries and everything. 
So let's think about this as we conclude the character of God, the calamity of God's enemies, and finally the challenge for us as God's people. The challenge for God's people. Point number three. The Bible says to buy the truth and sell it not. In other words, do everything you can to learn the truth of God's word, but never let it go. Don't get rid of it. There's nothing more valuable. I'd like at this point just to announce, which I don't normally do, but just to announce the title of this message. It's called Passing the Truth or Pass the Truth. There's nothing more valuable. And unfortunately, there are examples in the Bible over and over of parents who simply fail to extend the truth of God to their children. I even think of the book of Judges, for example. And you think of all the wickedness and what took place in Israel in the book of Judges, where it says that everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. Yet the book of Judges is right after the book of Joshua, where at the end of Joshua, everybody comes together and they make this vow that they're going to serve the Lord and obey his voice. And they're telling Joshua that there's no need to worry. We're going to follow God. But something happens and they don't. The next generation comes along and fails to follow after God. You know, it's one thing to make a decision in church or at home. Now we're going to follow God. I'm going to surrender to God. It's another thing to follow through on that decision. It's one thing to have the truth of the word of God and to know it well. It's another to pass it on to the next generation, to your children, to your disciples in ministry. Don't keep the truth to yourself. Pass it on. Pass the truth. You know, the book of Jonah is a favorite of many. Everybody knows about Jonah and the whale and and the revival in Nineveh. It's a remarkable thing. But it's so often forgotten that this wonderful occasion was very short-lived because they failed to tell the next generation of the goodness of God. They failed to speak of the wonder of God to their children and to others. They failed to tell the young people who would grow up later that one day a prophet, looking like he had been in a fish or something, showed up to our town He didn't look that great. His message was pretty short. Eight words, in fact. But his God happened to show up with him. And there turned out to be a great revival. And every single one of us turned to God and repented. Even the king, all the way down to the lowest person, repented and turned to God. Nobody told the next generation. They failed to pass the truth. To others. This is our challenge for today. Think about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven could have been a wonderful place with just God and the angels, but He chose to send Christ for us. And Christ came down to this earth. The Bible says He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did not need any of us, He could have kept all of that for Himself. We didn't deserve and do not deserve anything. He came and lived a sinless life, died on the cross, 
for our sins, made a way for us to live in heaven one day. And he didn't stop there. He promised to be with us forever. And we can abide in Christ even as he abides with us. He didn't have to. He chose to do all of that for us. And the Bible says he ever liveth making intercession for us. Jesus did not keep himself from us. Who are we to keep the truth from others? In a world lost in darkness and sin, we have the light in the palm of our hands today. So as we think about God's view of wickedness and sin and his attitude toward the nations who reject God, what is the solution to that? What can we do about it? Let me encourage you to find a disciple. Find someone to pass the truth to them. The Apostle Paul found Timothy and Titus and Silas and others. Peter mentored Mark. And we could go on and on. The great Apostle Paul and Peter could have kept the truth to themselves. But they didn't. They realized that the truth wasn't going to die with them. They had to raise up the next generation in the things of God. They needed to extend the truth to someone else because the gospel must needs go forward. You know, you can be as faithful as you want in your ministry and excel in that specific area in your church, but what about your kids? What about young people who look up to you, who God has placed in your path to be an influence to them for the cause of Jesus Christ? Pass the truth to someone else, to the next generation. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because the Bible says that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And, you know, Jesus didn't say that we're supposed to become the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He said that we are already those things. That is our identity. The disciples took what they learned from Jesus Christ himself. They didn't sit with it there in Jerusalem and have a wonderful church just there. They spread the gospel. They spread the truth. They told someone else. The church in Acts had everything, thousands of members and the apostles and everything was great, but they didn't stay there. The Bible says they scattered abroad, turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And all these people believed that they were living in the end times at that time and that the truth had to go forward to other people. Who are we then to be lazy and to be complacent? with the truth of the word of God? Who are we to act as if there is no urgency to this matter when Jesus gave everything for us? You know, the nations that forget God will be destroyed. And so therefore, my job is to salt the earth, to light the world for Jesus Christ while I'm still here and to pass on that truth to someone else. I'm so thankful for a man over 40 years ago <clears throat> who shared the truth with my dad who, who invited him to church over 
and over again. With tracts after tracts, conversation after conversation, he was rejected many times. My dad didn't want anything to do with God until one day he did. And two weeks after my dad went to church for the first time, he was saved. Because this man wasn't content to keep the truth to himself. And he saw someone who needed the truth and was persistent. And he said, I'm going to pass the truth on to the next person. I'm so thankful for a friend of my mom's who, as a teenager, witnessed to my mom and over and over again invited her to church to ride the bus with her. Until one day, my mom trusted Christ as Savior. I'm so thankful for my parents who surrendered to God's call to come to Kenya as missionaries. They weren't content to keep the truth to themselves. I'm so thankful that they adopted my brother and I, and from day one, taught us the word of God. When we are so small, just learning how to read, we are taught to read 10 verses a day. That was the beginning. They weren't content to just let us grow up a little bit and we'll figure out their salvation later on. No. From day one, teaching us the word of God. Not content to just do their ministry with all their experience, but no, they extended the truth to us, the next generation. They made investments in our lives. They were planning ahead for what God would have us to do. I'm so thankful that after I was saved, my dad helped me, led me to Christ at seven years of age. He didn't stop there. He encouraged me to surrender my whole life to God and to give him everything and to tell God, I'm going to go wherever you want me to go, do whatever you want me to do. And I'm so thankful that I had a dad who encouraged me to do that and to make that, all, that one decision to surrender my entire life to Christ. He wasn't content that I was saved on my way to heaven. He wanted me to, to do the will of God in every way. And I would not be here without that decision. But you see, all of these started with one person, one person who had a vision. One person in Wisconsin over 40 years ago who we don't even have contact with today, who at that time was not content to keep the truth to himself, who shared the gospel with my dad. One teenager in New York many years ago wasn't content to ride the bus with her other friend. She wanted more. She had another friend who was at home. Her, that person was my mom. And she wanted her to hear the truth too. And after that, she was saved. One person looking ahead to the future. One person getting a vision for truth going beyond themselves. One person willing to pass the truth to the next generation. Don't hold on to the truth and never give it to someone else. Because someone shared the gospel with you. Someone took time. Maybe it was through preaching. Maybe it was through one-on-one counseling, whatever it may be. Somebody shared the gospel with you. And that is why we're here today. Somebody made a spiritual investment in your life. That's why we're here today. Share the gospel with your kids, with your family. Share the truth 
to the next person in church, to that young person who has so much potential. May they use that for God. Be the channel of blessing that God would have you to be. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. So, in conclusion, we do understand that spiritual opposition is real. Wickedness is abounding more and more. The enemy is out to discourage and defeat, but he is already defeated. The Bible says, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. We serve a God who is a jealous God. He will destroy his enemies, mountains and hills, quake and burn before him. But he is also a good God and a stronghold in the day of trouble. If you're near Nahum chapter 1, go ahead and look at Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7 as we close the message. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's read this verse together as we conclude. Together now. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. And may God help us to trust him as we seek to pass the truth unto others. May we not be like the Ninevites, who experienced the reviving work of God, but kept it all to themselves. They didn't extend it to anybody else, and eventually they were destroyed. Pass the truth to the next generation. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this time of looking into your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a powerful God, a jealous God, You will not let the wicked get away, but at the same time, you are merciful to each and every one of us and allowing us the opportunity to have the word of God, to learn the word of God and not to just keep it all to ourselves, but to extend it to our children, to other young people, to somebody else out there. Lord, I pray that this would be a sobering reminder to each and every one of us of the importance of passing the truth. Maybe you're here today with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around. And you would say, please pray for me, I'm not saved. I don't have the truth yet in my heart. I've never accepted Jesus Christ to be my personal Savior. And I realize that Jesus came and died for me on the cross of Calvary, giving me an opportunity to be in heaven with him one day. But I've never made that decision. I've never asked Christ to come into my heart and save me. And you would say, please pray for me. I'm not saved, but I would like someone to help me to see the truth, to understand the gospel and to be saved. Is there anyone like that this afternoon? Just by raising your hand and putting it down, you would say, please pray for me. I'm not saved, but may God help me to make that decision. Anyone at all? Last question. Maybe you're here today and you would say, please pray for me. I need to pass the truth to the next generation. Perhaps it's to my children. Perhaps it's to a disciple in the church of God. And I need to stop keeping the truth that I know to myself. I need to find a Timothy. I need to find a Titus. 
I need to find someone that will be my disciple, and I'm going to teach them the ways of the Lord so that they will know the truth and in turn pass it to the next generation. And you would say, please pray for me. I'm taking up the challenge to pass the truth. Anyone like that this afternoon, just by raising your hand and putting it down, you would say, I want to pass the truth to the next generation. Anyone at all? All right, I see those hands. Let me put them down. Anyone else? I want to take up the challenge to pass the truth. I don't want to be a Ninevite. I want to be a true Christian. Anyone else this afternoon? Lord, we do pray for all these and all of us, Lord, who have raised their hand. Lord, I do pray that you would help them to seek opportunities to pass the truth to others. Help us, Lord, to be involved in discipleship, in witnessing, in counseling, and in talking with our families so that the truth will not just die with us in this fellowship, but it will continue for years and generations to come because we made the decision that we're going to pass the truth to others. Help us not to be like the Ninevites who had a wonderful revival, but failed to keep it going. And Lord, I pray that you would help us with the decisions that have been made this evening. Lord, I do pray for someone who may be here without Christ. Help them to be saved. Help them to understand the love of God, that Jesus came and died for them and opened up a way for them to be in heaven one day. Help them to be saved, Lord. Help us to identify them, share the gospel with them. Lord, I thank you for all those who have come to hear from your word. Help us to take up the challenge. Help us to pass the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.